Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation from Jersey City. In that great state of New Jersey, thanks for being with me. It's great to be here. Got a great show for you this evening. Um, We're going to be talking with a journalist who's based in Paris, journalist and author named Guillaume Pitron, who has written a book called The Dark Cloud, The Hidden Costs of the Digital World. And this is... This is a book that is bringing up a really important topic that does not get quite enough coverage here in the U.S. Although just in the, just in the last couple of months, I've been collecting more and more news stories, some of which I've put on the playlist for you, that have to do with the environmental costs of the Internet and other digital technologies what Petron did in researching this book, you'll hear in the interview, he, he visited 10 different countries and he went and, and found the places where the internet actually exists physically, not as part of some ethereal cloud, this idea of this celestial body somewhere in some abstract land serving up your cat videos, uh, but rather a very physical build out of infrastructure, of servers, and undersea cables, and uh, and data centers, and the places where the the minerals, often the conflict minerals, are are uh, taken out of the ground in order to mash them all together, make them into these devices. All of those aspects, those very physical aspects, those very material aspects of the internet, are Petron's concern in this book as well as what are the effects when we turn all these things on, when, when we light them all up, what are the effects on the environment? What's the carbon footprint? What's the pollution look like? And so on. What's the heating? And this book is a very readable book that goes through, in a series of chapters, different kinds of Internet materiality, whether it's infrastructure or devices, and the, the effects that they all have on the environment, on the climate. And so I, I found it fascinating, and it made me think a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had Chris Dedecker on talking about his solar-powered website. If you didn't listen to that, you can, you can find it in the archives. But Dedecker was talking about how his website is, is powered by a very low-power uh, server that it, that is attached to a solar panel on the balcony of his apartment in Barcelona, Spain. <laughs> and if there's not enough sun for, for a long enough time, if it's cloudy and rainy for enough days in a row, I guess, the whole thing goes down, which means the whole website goes down. And I think he does that as a proof of concept to remind us that there is a connection between the environment and our uh, our privilege of, of using these tools, these online tools. And Petron takes that even further in the, in the sense of quantifying and really delineating what those material uh, impacts look like on the environment. So we're going to hear this uh, interview with Guillaume Petron. And uh, if you want to join in the live listener chat, you can go to WFMU.org and click Playlists and Comments. If you're listening to an archive or podcast version, go to the playlist link uh, that is listed at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and click the playlist link for the December 11, 2023 show. And you can see not only the, the comments that listeners are making this evening, but you can also see a wealth of links to news stories from the last uh, couple of months that I've posted there, all having to do with uh, recent stories where, where journalists and researchers are starting to quantify what the costs, the environmental costs of various um, online technologies, digital technologies really are. That's all worth looking at. And if we have time after the interview, I think I'll have a few extra minutes. I'll say a, a word or two about those links. But first, let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Guillaume Petron talking about his book, The Dark Cloud, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Guillaume Petron, 
Welcome to Tectonic. Thank you, Mark Hurst, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You have written a very important book that people should pay attention to. This is called The Dark Cloud, The Hidden Costs of the Digital World. I found this book to be fascinating and depressing, <laughs> which is... Certainly. Yeah, it's it's somewhat of a common combination these days when you learn about tech. But this book talks about the environmental impact of digital companies, platforms, data centers, Internet of Things, smartphones and other hardware, all kinds of impacts of digital on the world. Just to set the stage, one of the things you say early on in the book which I think describes why this book is so important, is you write, the vast majority of us cannot explain the infrastructure behind our connected computers, tablets, and smartphones. This comes up a lot in this book, that people just don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. They will use the screen, they'll use a platform, but they don't understand the impact that that's having on the environment and far-flung communities around the world. Can you say more about, just on a high level, what is it you're trying to describe to us that people don't understand? What I'm trying to describe, Mark, is a fallacy. And this is a fallacy of dematerialization. We are tend to believe that we can, with dematerialized capitalism, have the best of the both worlds. A capitalistic world where we're going to get richer and richer and we're going to grow, and at the same time, turning digital and dematerialized which is going to save the planet. And this is just completely untrue. Turning virtual comes at a high environmental cost, but especially a material cost. Because behind a digital world and behind your connected lives, there are all these materials which are necessary for manufacturing your phones and the 34 billion phones and tablets and, and, and computers uh, working on Earth right now, uh, but also the servers for data centers, satellites uh, for uh, space uh, internet, and also the cables for wire, wiring everyone from one place of the world to the other. All this is a really huge infrastructure which we have no idea about. And I really want to turn upside down this very idea that uh, we're going to save the planet in any way by using these devices the way we use them today. You write that the common wisdom is that, quote, only by using digital technologies will we save the planet. <laughs> but as you just said, that's just not true. The book is full of paradox, one of them being that, as you write, the digital world has the reputation of having no material impact at all, and yet it has huge material impact for the manufacturing and the maintenance of all the hardware, as you're saying, as well as the power demands. One way I described the book to a friend is to say, you know how we used to use paper in offices and schools and everything? And everyone said, if we can just get away from paper, then we'll save the earth because we won't be cutting down so many trees. And then we started using the internet. And the internet had and still has this reputation that because we're not using paper, somehow it's environmentally friendly because it's, it's weightless and, to use your word, it's dematerialized. This book, The Dark Cloud, goes into detail about how that's just not true, how there is really a massive impact, material impact on the world. Maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the numbers that you quote early in the book. You say that digital pollution is the fastest growing type of pollution. And you continue that the global digital industry consumes enough water, material, and energy to give it a footprint triple that of a country such as the UK. These are massive numbers. Definitely, yes. As we've said, this is first uh, uh, an ecological footprint, which can be explained by the materials which are getting used, but also by the energy, which is necessary to uh, turn the infrastructure on 24 hours 7. Uh, the data centers are working all the time. They must make sure uh, that you can get access to any web service any time of the day or the night. Uh, you have to get... Uh, an overbuilding uh, of infrastructure. You have to build more infra 
and to make run more of them in order to make sure that if one data center is going down, is running out of power, there is another one working at the same at the very same moment and, and replacing it. And that brings us to having such a, such a, such an impact. The digital world is is a wonderful creation. Let let me be clear about that. We are right now speaking thanks to such a device, and I, I cannot thank our modernity in a way for for having created such a, such a technology. But because we use it so much right now, and because the COVID times has been passing by in the mean, in the meantime, which means that we're spending even more time online for anything, the growth of the industry is very strong, but the ecological footprint of it is also very strong. And it is the strongest, as you said, because right now, obviously, from a pure economic standpoint, the digital world is the fastest growing economy in the world. And we are at the very beginning of such an impact. We are at the very big, very beginning of putting figures on this. 10% of the world electricity today is being used for digital technologies. And if you turn this figure into CO2 emissions, because you have to produce electricity out of either coal or gas or oil or nuclear technology or green technologies, that amounts to 4% of world greenhouse gas emissions. 4% is more than planes. Plane is 2.4. The digital world is 4. So that's much more. And we are just at the beginning of, of realizing, discovering, calculating these figures. And if we keep that way, it's going to become the double in the medium term, according to some figures. And that may be a huge issue, and that may make internet not consistent with anything that we relate to the fight against climate change. That's right. The internet originally came out saying, we're going to be dematerialized. You're not going to have to use paper. This dematerialized ethereal realm is going to use fewer resources. The reality, as you write, is that if the digital world were a country, it would be the third biggest consumer of energy after China and the United States. That's hardly a, a dematerialized technology. It just gets more and more depressing, but I have to just echo what you said. This is just at the beginning. You write that those impacts could increase to become as much as 20% of global electricity by 2025, which is not very, very long from now. In two years, we could see digital accounting for one-fifth of all electricity usage in the world. I may hope that this figure uh, uh, will come to reality a bit further in the future. Not maybe, not maybe 2025, maybe within 10 years. But still, even if this is not in the short term, in the medium term, that uh, is a real issue. And we have no idea about this, Mark, because uh, we have in our hands a beautiful iPhone or any kind of other phone. And, you know, this is such a beautiful object, which conveys an idea of uh, aesthetic perfection. And Steve Jobs was not a Buddhist, but he was fascinated by the aesthetic of Buddhism. And he considered that the aesthetics of uh, the Zen Buddhism from Japan was uh, kind of a perfection. And he wanted the phones, which would be the first iPhone to be produced by, by his firm, to look like Zen Buddhist Japanese temple with uh, an Aetherian aesthetics, which would convey an idea of virginity. And so you have within your hands a wonderful object, which is so beautiful and which completely undermines anything that's behind it, which is the infrastructure itself, internet, the cables, the satellites, the data centers. And because for 99% of us, we're not going to have a sensitive understanding of the internet further than just having our phones in our, into our hands, we cannot have a singular idea of it, of the impact that it has. How can something which is beautiful be dirty at the same time? And I think from the very beginning, there is this fallacy of something which has no impact because we have within our hands our only sensitive perception of internet, which is a beautiful object. You write about yet another paradox of, as you say, people holding the only material symbol of the internet in their hand, this, what they consider to be a beautiful, elegant, aesthetically pleasing object, without any clue or awareness about how the manufacturer and the eventual trashing of that object are going to affect communities elsewhere in the world. You have this great quote in the book, you say, 
Thus, well-intentioned urbanites continue to praise the environmental and nutritional benefits of chickpea flour pasta, rave about using public access bicycles to get to their yoga class, and happily trade in their mobile phone for a new model every 18 months. <laughs> I must say, Mark, that I'm quite uh, uh, hard in a, in a way with my judgment, and I, I actually... Uh, include myself, feature myself into this description of the modern urban 40 years old guy who I am. <laughs> but uh, in a way, that's true. We, we make efforts in a way to, you know, mitigate our footprint uh, because we have in mind the traditional, uh, you know, ecological impact of our daily consumption habits, eating meat, taking planes, uh, using a car uh, or using plastic. But actually, uh, other impacts are looming, and we have no idea about this. I love the climate generation. I love what they do. But this generation is also the same, the very same generation spearheading an explosion of the digital uh, footprint, which makes this technology inconsistent with our fight against climate change. And I have the, the question to the climate generation, are you really consistent in your actions with the message that you claim? When we look at how you change mobile phones all the time and how you spend hours watching videos on the web with a real e ecological impact. In my country, in France, a young who is between 18 and 25 has already used five smartphones and is now using, on average, his or her six smartphones. And this is a complete paradox. This is complete nonsense when you claim that you want to save the planet. So, yeah, in a way, we try to do good on one hand, but we realize other types of pollution. And that's my job as a journalist to actually speak about that. And again, yet another reason I think this book is important, because this messaging is just not getting out. Because so much of our conversation here in the U.S. about technology is dominated by the companies you call the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, the companies that are fully invested in us buying a new phone, watching those videos, putting our lives completely online, they don't want any kind of conversation about the measurable material impact that their platforms are having on our environment. You write that globally, every year, if you added up all of the electronic waste, the e-waste that just these devices create, forget all the manufacturing and the energy impact, just the e-waste from the devices would fill... 5,000 Eiffel Towers. I mean, the, the scale of the waste, is just, it's, it's hard to even conceive of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do agree with you. And this is the most important type of uh, impacts when we talk about uh, digital pollution. This is precisely the material impact of a, such a pollution. Uh, this is uh, our phones, tablets, uh, computers. Marketing strategies organize their planned obsolescence, which means that you're going to have to change such a computer or phone because as it goes down you can't change the battery because the battery is glued to the phone and you may just want to change the battery but actually you can't do it so you have to replace the entire phone it's also a software obsolescence uh, which means that uh, your phone is so old that you can't download the latest uh, application from a web service you have to change the phone and take a new phone in order to to make it uh, consistent with a software application. So that's what, we, that's what we call software obsolescence. So that makes you even more use such kind of phones. And at the end, we come up to the figure that you have just mentioned. It's not economically interesting to, to recycle them. And actually, because we don't want to recycle them because it doesn't make any, any economic sense, we prefer to dump them. Usually they end up in Africa, in dumps in Africa or in dumps in Asia. And we forget about it and we go to the next phone. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host until the top of the hour when uh, Dave Manda will come in with uh, It's Complicated. We are just halfway, not quite halfway, through my interview with Guillaume Pitron, a Parisian journalist and author who's got a book out called The Dark Cloud, The Hidden Costs, of the digital world, talking about the environmental impact of all things 
digital, that is to say the devices, the manufacturer, the waste, the energy usage, the pollution, and other environmental impacts. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlists and comments, and you can join in. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Guillaume Pitron here on Tectonic on WFMU. You had a couple of really good chapters on data centers. These are important to focus on because the companies behind them, the big tech companies, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, so on, they do not want us to pay attention to the data centers that are really proliferating. These are, for people who don't know, these are the regionally based warehouses full of servers that serve up the videos, the web access, whatever people are using to internet users in that geographic region. Just for a sense of scale, Guillaume, you write that there are nearly 3 million data centers worldwide already with a minimum surface area of 500 square meters. That's, for Americans, that's over 5,000 square feet. And in addition to those, or within those, there are over 500 so-called hyperscale data centers with surface areas sometimes as big as a football pitch. So these data centers are proliferating all over the world. I've covered them a little bit on Tectonic in past episodes. But just to talk about some of the material impact from these data centers, a lot of the electricity usage of digital comes from these data centers, and they are designed to evade public awareness. Data centers are usually huge boxes which are being built in the suburbs of cities. And uh, in the United States, there are such cities which are sometimes called cloud cities in reference to the cloud. Uh, you find one of these cities in the south of Washington, D.C., and the name of such a city is, is Ashburn. And this is a huge cloud city where you see all these data centers, but basically there's no brand and you have no idea what's inside. And if you don't know and if you don't ask, you will not even guess that 70% of the world's data is just passing by this specific city where you have these boxes. I mean, it's true about Meta, for example. Meta is basically making the data center it has built in Europe, in Lapland, in the north of Europe, as clear as the sky, completely mundane. The, the, the brand of, of Facebook is nowhere on the building. Even in the legal documents, Meta is not um, uh, registered in Sweden, where they have built such a data center, with the name Meta. They, they have used other words of a local branch. So basically, everyone ends up just not caring anymore about this huge infrastructure and about the electricity it consumes because it's become boring. And as I kept working on, on, such a, on such an industry, I discovered about Amazon, for example, that same thing. The data centers of Amazon are not registered under the name Amazon, but under other names. Can I interrupt for one second? Yeah. Sorry, because, because this is one of the details that I loved in this book. And I know that some American readers are, are going to appreciate this. As you say, Amazon is using shell companies to put together these these horrible deals for data centers, which I've covered on the show before. And so they come up with these names of, of the shell companies. One of them that you listed is a shell company that Amazon set up called Vandalay Industries. <laughs> now, do you know the significance of the name Vandalay Industries, Guillaume? I have no idea. Okay, so you actually put in a very funny fact in this book. The name Vandalay Industries comes from a Seinfeld episode, which is a very popular TV show here in the 1990s. It was a fake company that one of the characters had claimed to set up, Vandalay Industries. And so Amazon hmm. is having some fun at our expense, setting up its own fake company in order to install a giant data center. Interesting. Interesting. And there are also examples of a data center by Apple in the United States uh, being built. The very existence of such a data center was not shown on Google Map. The satellite images 
were uh, updated only the day or at the moment where such a data center was being turned on. And there was no way for local communities to really have a sense of what was going on because there was no visibility of such a data center uh, with uh, Google satellite images. Wait, you're saying that during the construction of the data center, Google Maps did not have images of the construction site. (laughs) So only when it was completed, then it showed up on Google Maps. Exactly. And that was a way, actually, to conceal all the potential discussions such that the center would spark with local communities. Uh, sharing of water, because water is necessary for uh, refreshing with air conditioning systems, so data centers, but also the usage of electricity. And sometimes such an usage might come into conflict with other ways of using the electricity for, uh, you know, uh, lighting your house. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically, all these debates which could have happened just didn't come to existence, never happened because there was a more difficulty for local communities to have a sense of what was really happening with the building of this data center. And this is what I found fascinating about it. How do you want to discuss about something which you don't see, which you don't smell, which you don't uh, listen to, was a very physical existence which doesn't exist in a way. How can you be criticized if you're just out of reality, if you're untouchable? And this is what I found fascinating about this industry is that the moment you just disappear from the real world or you make yourself so invisible and so untouchable in the physical world, you can't be criticized. There, there cannot be any, any strike because where should I strike if the infra doesn't exist? And that's a way just to make any debate just disappear around your very existence because you do exist on the computers. Your logo is visible everywhere on screens, but your physical existence is just nowhere visible in any way in the real world. Yeah, as you point out, it's very hard to put together a picket line outside a place that is hard to find and essentially doesn't exist or has been made to seem invisible. These data centers are having a huge impact on energy usage. You write that in Dublin, where Apple, Microsoft, and Facebook have set up operations, data centers now consume more energy than the city's population. What's more, data centers could consume up to 29% of the country's electricity. That's Ireland's electricity by 2028. And that's just data centers. We're not talking about the material impact of smartphones and everything else. I wonder how many residents of Dublin know that their energy usage is dwarfed by the data centers of American big tech companies that have set up there. Hmm. This I have no idea about because in my investigation, I've been in about 10 countries around the world, but I have not been in Ireland specifically. So I haven't I didn't have a sense of how such reality has come surfacing in the public debate. It has come surfacing in in other countries, uh, such as the Netherlands, for example. Amsterdam is a very important city in Europe for a data center. It's really one of the hubs of the data centers. And in 2019, the electricity consumed by the data center was, I think, 10% of the total electricity consumption of the city. And the mayor uh, wrote, at some point we've got to understand that, you know, watching videos of cats on our iPhones comes at an electrical cost. And that if we want to have all of us enough electricity for at the same time being on internet and being able to heat ourselves when winter comes, we'll have to figure out a way to organize such a sprawling of data centers in the city and in its suburbs. And Amsterdam was the first city in the world to actually uh, put a moratorium, say, oh, let's stop. Let's just take one year just to get a sense of what's happening because we have just come into a situation which is just uncontrollable because we want to keep, you know, 
um, uh, um, um, we want to keep mastering our fate. Uh, otherwise, we'll just get lost with this industry. But that tells you, and that created a debate. That created a debate, uh, you know, in the public. And this is once again Netherlands, ne the Netherlands and Amsterdam, a country where such debate came came to surface in, in the public, uh, in the uh, among the public. But that remains quite, um, you know, uh, rare in a way. Uh, once again, um, we have hardly clear view, clear figures of how such an industry, uh, what it does represent in our electricity consumption and all the energy networks behind, whether it's coal power plants, oil, gas power plants, nuclear power plants and, and wind farms and, and, and solar farms to, to make all these things work. You also mentioned that in Sweden... Uh, Facebook has two data centers in that country, and just those two Facebook data centers consume 1% to 2% of the entire amount of energy generated in Sweden. That, that's just remarkable. Yeah, and I think, as I speak to you now, I think they have come to up to three or four data centers. And there is a very interesting story, story behind this specific data center. Facebook has its main important data center in Prineville, Oregon, in the United States. But for the uh, African, European, and Middle East users, it has created another data center in Lapland, in the north of Sweden, 100 kilometers south uh, I would say 60 miles south of the Arctic Circle. And why did it choose such a remote place where nobody wants to go? And this is because the data center creates, uh, produce heat, a server is heating, and you have to, you have to cool it to uh, uh, an acceptable temperature, I would say 25 degrees. I wouldn't know how to translate that into Fahrenheit. But basically, you use air conditioning systems in order to be able to refresh the, the, the servers. And that needs electricity. But if you go to the coldest place on Earth, well, basically, you don't have to have any, any air conditioning system. You have what you call free cooling. So you just open the door of the data center, if I want to exaggerate a little bit, and you just let the blizzard get in, and you refresh the emails the pictures, the videos of cats. And this is what Facebook did. They moved to one of the coldest places on Earth because they wanted to get some free cooling. And no, my data, as a French, actually are stored over there under meters of snow most of the air, most of the time. And they are naturally being refreshed by the snow. And that is a way to for Facebook to have a very strong message saying, oh, we have understood that, you know, the internet may have an impact on the environment. And we as a company don't want to be associated with climate change. And we have taken the decision to move the cloud, to displace the cloud, literally speaking. This is the most amazing uh, adventure of moving videos of cats, emails, pictures from meta services, WhatsApp messages from meta services from one place of the world, Oregon Prineville, to actually Northern Europe, where we find coal and where we, less, we use less electricity for refreshing the data and where we are more, uh, you know, where our policies are more environmentally friendly. And I find this uh, story fascinating. Well, the, the heat may be flowing out of the data center into a blizzard, but it's still heating the planet, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's the same amount of heat, whether it's in Prineville or in Lapland. The other thing that you bring up is that a lot of the energy of Facebook data centers is due to all of the tracking, all of the surveillance and tracking that comes along with people's usage of Facebook. One could say the same about Google and much of what Amazon does as well these days. So for big tech companies that are so dependent on intrusive surveillance of their users, all of that surveillance requires a load of energy, as opposed to companies that don't do this. You write, using online services that respect users' privacy also limits the harvesting of data and its energy-intensive storage. So part of the environmental price of people using these big tech services comes from all of the surveillance that is included in the operation of those platforms. 
Yes, in a way, we don't make such a connection between uh, uh, surveillance and the environment. This is something which is not being done usually. I made this connection by investigating on a fascinating data center, probably the most fascinating of all data centers and others, which is the most important data center of the National Security Agency, the NSA in the United States. And in 2013, they built their biggest data center in a city which is called Bluffdale in Utah. The thing is, this data center needed and still needs water. Water, once again, being a raw material being used by the air conditioning systems to refresh the data. But we are in the second driest state of the United States. So how do you make sure that you're not going to run out of water? This question sparked the interest of local NGOs very much opposed to NSA activities. And what they did, and this is a true story, is that they tried actually to find a way for the Utah state to actually cut off the supply of water to a federal facility, which is the NSA facility. And by legal means, they tried to actually cut off the water supplies, making a link between water and surveillance. And their ambition was to say, no water, no surveillance. They didn't succeed. But this is a fascinating story, which tells you that anything that is as ambitious as surveilling people everywhere on Earth actually still is very much reliant on something as simple as a raw material, which is called water. Yeah, and water is an enduring theme of this book throughout the manufacturing process of the hardware these devices, these servers, computers, laptops, tablets, they all require colossal amounts of water just in the manufacturing process. Then when you talk about data centers, as you say, the water becomes very important for cooling down the servers. Then you have another chapter on undersea cables, which of course are laid in water. And th- throughout, mm-hmm. you're, you're seeing that water is a key element of the very existence of the internet and this digital blob that we're dealing with here. Yeah, because uh, between you and I, as we speak right now, Mark, there are data centers, as we said, but there are also cables. And most of us may still may still believe that the data, uh, leaving my phone and going to someone else's phone, goes through the air, And in a way, we keep thinking that satellites are part of this infrastructure. It's a true in a way because Elon Musk is developing space uh, satellite systems. But still, 95 to 99% of the data, which we are exchanging right now and every day, still goes through submarine optic fiber cables. And there is a very simple reason for that. Only cables can actually sustain such a bandwidth comparing to satellites, which cannot do such a job. So basically today we are wired all the time. And now someone talks about uh, wireless internet and wireless phones, but we are, we have never marked been so much wired each of us to all the rest of the planets than we are today. And these wires, the submarine fiber optic cables account to 450 to 500 cables scattered through oceans, linking continents. And the total amount of all these cables is 1.2 million kilometers, 30 times the circumference of the Earth. And if you want to link France to the United States as we speak right now, well, there's there's a cable. And the information, the data, my voice and your voice is actually crossing the Atlantic Ocean at at a speed of 200,000 kilometers a second. So you don't feel the distance, but there is still the distance which must be actually traveled by data in the form of pulsations of light in a fiber optic cable. Let's talk about your conclusion. I often like to end interviews on a positive note, and I will recommend that readers read this book, The Dark Cloud, and they'll see that you do have some bright spots throughout the book talking about activists and NGOs that are trying to change how digital impacts the world. They're trying to recycle devices better. They're trying to raise public awareness and and various things. But the conclusion of the book is not exactly a bright spot, which I think is fitting for this book. You're trying to tell us the truth although it's rather harsh, 
you're trying to tell us the truth about where we stand with digital right now. I want to read one of my favorite sentences you wrote in this conclusion. You write, by burying our heads in the sand of an allegedly ethereal world, free of all physical shackles, we are evading the reality that will eventually catch up with us. A dematerialized world will always be a more materialistic world. So the, the future that you are foreseeing, that you are communicating to us, is one where this supposedly dematerialized internet has a greater and greater and greater material impact on all of us. It's very true, Mark. Uh, we don't know sufficiently that for manufacturing a 150 grams phone, we need 182 kilograms of raw materials during all the life cycle of the phone. We don't know that for a two gram chip in your phone, the brain of your phone, the microprocessor, we need 32 kilograms, up to 32 kilograms of raw materials just to manufacture this chip. So the ratio between the finished weight of the product and all the resources that have been uh, you know, required during all the industry process to make such a product is huge. And it's true for any product of your life, a pen, a shirt, but it's even more true for these complex products, which we call iPhone and other smartphones and tablets. So the material impact of digital technologies is the highest impact of every object around us. And the more you turn virtual, Mark, the more you turn material. Still believing today in this idea that we're going to turn into a dematerialized world is very dangerous because if we keep thinking that way, we're not going to understand the real dangers arising out of this technology for the planet. And we need to, to, to fight this, uh, this ready-made idea. Still, there are solutions. And I, I also insist upon the fact that no technology is bad in itself. No technology is good in itself. No technology is neutral. It's ambiguous. It's, it's as good as what we, or as bad as what we do with it. We can use this technology in the best way and really mitigate its impact if we first work on keeping our phones longer. And this is as simple as keeping our phones longer, saying, well, I'm not going to change my iPhone every 18 months. I'm going to change my iPhone every three years or four years. I'm going to repair it, or I'm going to choose a phone which is more repairable than another phone. If I can do this, I can divide per two maybe all this material impact of the internet, which stands for two-thirds of its pollution. So by having such a simple gesture of keeping your phone, you can make a world of a difference. I have an iPhone 7. I've had this iPhone 7 for three years. I bought it secondhand. For the last three years, it broke 10 times. I repaired it 10 times. I repaired the screen, I repaired the batteries, I repaired the main button. Well, it still works very well. It's, it's, it's an almost entirely new phone. I wouldn't say the best one. I wouldn't say sometimes I'm not angry at my phone. But still, we get along well and that's a good mate. I do my best. But if we all do this, that makes a world of a difference. That's kind of a hopeful thought to end on, that we can have an effect by doing something small such as not replacing our iPhone I always, just so you know, Guillaume, I always say on this show, the best thing to do with an iPhone is to throw it into the river. That's a great place to, for it to, to lie as well. <laughs> or to connect it to WFMU radio. That's also the way to use it. <laughs> That's right. Connect it to WFMU or throw it in the river. Of course, I'm speaking metaphorically. The river, don't put your digital devices in the river. Put them in the e-waste facility and maybe get a flip phone Instead, and this is again, I'm talking to myself here because see, I have a probably a three or four year old iPhone here, which I would love to get rid of. But um, this, <laughs> this book says a lot about not just smartphones and tablets that people are used to using and seeing, but it says so much about the systems and infrastructures that we don't see and the impacts that people probably have no idea about. So I really recommend this to Tectonic listeners. The book is called The Dark Cloud, The Hidden Costs of the Digital World, written by my guest today, Guillaume Pitron. Guillaume, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Mark. A pleasure being with you.
And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 12 minutes of the show. And then the great Dave Mandel will push that cart into Studio A, and he will commence another great episode of It's Complicated, his prog rock show. So listen up for that. Then you've got Bad Animals after that with Amanda and Jim the Poet, and then Brother Daniel Blumen with his eponymous show from 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern. Just keep that digital device locked onto WFMU. <laughs> as we were talking on the, the comment board, the as as streams go, the WFMU audio stream is not one of the heavier bandwidth. Uh, options out there you could do so much heavier uh, streaming for example if you streamed a YouTube video you've got the video itself uh, which video of course having a lot more bandwidth than just audio but also all of YouTube's surveillance larded up in the thing as well that would go for Facebook and Instagram and TikTok all those those image and video feeds just just bristling with surveillance and as we heard from Guillaume a lot of the uh, a lot of the bandwidth a lot of the energy usage for this internet build out and what the data centers are are capturing and, and covering a lot of it is devoted to the surveillance that big tech companies have made central to their business models intrusive um, and in some cases as we're seeing from the EU unlawful Surveillance certainly it's unethical in um, in much in much of its usage. How much better would it be if the companies we used were the ones who simply delivered the streams that we wanted, and not all of this hidden surveillance larded up in 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 the stream as well? Anyway, keep the 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 point of this is keep tuned to WFMU, and don't uh, don't feel bad about using a digital device for WFMU audio streams. Um, before, I, I want to say more about the, uh, about the interview and some of the news stories that I have about environmental impact. But before I forget, because, you know, I always end up rushing at the end, I just want to remind everybody, in two weeks, it's going to be the Christmas episode of Tectonic. It's going to be on 25 December, okay? And what I'm hoping to do is to feature your contributions, listener contributions. And I have several already. Thanks to everyone who sent in these already. What I'd like you to do is email me. You can either email me text in the body of an email, or you can email me an attached audio file answering this question. What was the best technology gift you ever got for the holidays? It could be for a birthday too. Who cares? But we're just talking about gifts, I guess, technology gifts in two weeks. It's going to be a little bit lighter. It's going to be a little more fun. We can relax, uh, and I hope it'll be a little a little light on the dystopia in that show in two weeks. Uh, so send me send me an email again with uh, what was your favorite technology gift. You you can email me at mark at wfmu.org. That's m a r k at wfmu.org. And again, thanks to those who've sent in. Uh, submissions already. Next week, I haven't announced this, so this is this is a scoop. You're hearing it first before anybody else. Next week, I'm hoping to have a very special in-studio guest. This is going to be for the December 18 show. It's been too long since we've had DJ Matt Warwick in the studio with me. And Matt and I have been talking. We have some things to talk about. We we we've got to we got to clear the air. We got to get we got to get through some material. So I'm hoping to have Matt Warwick there sitting right in that chair that I'm gesturing to right now on uh, mic number two in one week. So I hope you will tune in for that. Uh, Okay, so with the remaining couple of minutes, let me just say that on the playlist there, I I have posted a host of recent news stories about environmental impact of Internet and data centers and social media and big tech platforms. You can, again, find the playlist at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, uh, on the uh, December 11, 2023 show. 
several of the links, several of the news stories have to do with water usage. And it's just, it's amazing how much water the big tech companies are swallowing up. And it has gotten very little media coverage. And the, the, the amount of water that companies like Google are using up is beginning to have environmental impacts already. I mean, Guillaume and I were talking about what's going to happen five years and 10 years. Things are doubling. Things are going up to 20% of all electricity usage in, in certain countries. No, no, no. This, it, the environmental impacts are already uh, occurring in the U.S., especially in some of the drier states. So, for example, from there's a, a story from Insider from a few months ago with the headline, Arizona is running out of water. Big tech data centers are partly to blame. And so this is talking about a Google data center that was built some time ago in Mesa, just east of, east of Phoenix. The deal, and of course these big tech companies make these deals with these municipalities. Generally the citizens get no, um, no vote, no say in the deal. I don't know if that was the case here, but, but we've talked about this, how Data center deals with Amazon and other companies generally are outside the awareness or any sort of input from citizens. Anyway, going to the insider piece, quote, the deal guaranteed Google one million gallons of water per day to cool the facility. And if the project hit certain milestones, Arizona was going <laughs> to guarantee Google up to four million gallons of water a day. And just, just for uh, comparison, uh, on average, an Arizona resident will use about 146 gallons a day. So, you know, if you're a resident of Arizona, you're using your 100, 150 gallons of water a day. And then your neighbor uh, down the street, Google, is using 4 million gallons of water. Why? So that they can run their surveillance apparatus on you, your family, and your community. It's just a, it's a really bad deal. I mean, there is another way that we could use technology that didn't burn up the planet for the uh, enrichment of just a very, very few people at these extremely unethical and toxic companies. There is a, there is a different way that we could do this. And, and one way to learn about some of the steps you can take is to read Guillaume Patron's book, The Dark Cloud. The link is on the playlist. Um, the other thing after I was, and we're just about out of time, but there was a Gizmodo piece from December 1st that talks about um, AI, generative AI. You know how you can use ChatGPT's DALI and this, this uh, other service called MidJourney to create these uh, AI-generated images. Research is coming out that if you use uh, ChatGPT's DALI or MidJourney to create a series of images, that may produce more carbon than driving four miles in a car, just, just using it once. Um, there are environmental impacts due to using ChatGPT, even the text, the chatbot. Every, every few queries you put into ChatGPT is worth a, a bottle of water. Those add up real quick when you have every school kid in the U.S. trying to write reports with ChatGPT. And then finally from the BBC, uh, this is an interesting headline. Every Bitcoin payment, quote, uses a swimming pool of water. And uh, this, just keep in mind that as the BBC piece uh, puts it, th that was from November 29, up to 3 billion people on this planet already experience water shortages. And here we are building out platforms that are using a water bottle for a few queries on ChatGPT, using reportedly an entire swimming pool of water to, uh, to affect a Bitcoin payment, and for running uh, just one of Google's many data centers, assigning them up to 4 million gallons of water every single day. This is drinkable water that could have gone to residents and, uh, and plants and trees and who knows what in, in the Phoenix area. No, it goes to Google for, for its surveillance capitalist business model. This is the wrong way for us to use our natural resources. And I'm hoping that in, in our uh, tectonics next year, we can start looking for some solutions and see some better news. But first, we've got to raise some awareness. So send, send your friends and neighbors to listen to this show. We've got to get the word out about this on the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. 
Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Have a great week, everybody. And they're off. Welcome to another installment of It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here with this show every Monday evening at 7 p.m. following Mark Hurst. And I have a special guest tonight, co-host. Actually, I'm the co-host. <laughs> and my guest is Glenn Kenny. Glenn is a film critic, writes for the New York Times, writes, writes for RogerEbert.com, Criterion Collection, and is the author of Made Men, a book about Goodfellas. That is the deepest dive I've ever seen in my life into a film. Really an incredible book. Welcome, Glenn. Hey, thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming. I'm really and, glad to be here. Thank oh, you so much. Gl- glad to have you. And your mic's working. That's good news. So Prague Rock in Movies, there's not a whole lot of it. Um, but as... Um, was the Pat and Mike, uh, Spencer Tracy and Pat and Mike talking about this skinny Catherine Hepburns. There's not a lot of meat on her, but what there is is churse. Um, <laughs> what Prague Rock you do get in movies is often very, very interesting. And I want to kick off with a Prague Rock song that's actually not in a movie, at least not as itself. And I'll tell you the story about it after we hear it. And it's King Crimson's Lark's Tongues in Aspic Part 2 from 
Lark's tongue's in aspect. Oh, boy. All right, here we go. <laughs> 